blessing to be with you again. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. So good to hear the word taught last week by Pastor Ryan in Ephesians. Thank you, Ryan, for that magnificent exposition. I can't think of a better flow from the message of salvation by grace through faith alone to our study this week where we find this question, what must I do to have eternal life? So I can't help but assume that there may be people among us, maybe you're the one who is not a genuine believer. You've never genuinely had faith in Christ, repented of your sin, and followed Him, and perhaps God is using these pair of sermons, or maybe even the sermon today, to open up your heart to the truth of the gospel. There's nothing more important for you to hear than what the Bible says about entering the kingdom. So this week we come to this next section of Matthew, beginning here in this section, going all the way to the end of chapter 20. Jesus is making His way step by step to Jerusalem. The end of this section, He's leaving Jericho. He heals a couple of blind men there on His way out of the city of Jericho, and that's the last town that He visits before going into Jerusalem, uh, the area of Jerusalem, to Great Hosanna's and the Passion Week of Christ. Now, what happens in this chapter and a half before we get there? Well, in short, Jesus, and thus Matthew, teaches us again about entrance into the kingdom. Enter as a child. This is the the passage we come to, this theme we come to again. Enter as a child. And we're going to see that the person who enters as a child is in direct contrast to the person who seeks to enter the kingdom on his accomplishments. He seeks to enter with a life full of credentials or moral, social, financial merits. We often call this man the rich young ruler. He'd probably be better titled the rich young loser, or perhaps the rich young fool. And that's what I've titled the message today because that's what we're considering, the rich young fool. This man forfeits his eternal bliss with the God of the universe for junk. And he knows it. He walks away sad. He's a fool because in Christ's kingdom, earthly wealth and those belongings that he's clinging to jeopardize his eternity. They get you nowhere and they all burn up in the end anyway. Jesus tells him this, but the man is unwilling to give it up. Well, this is a point of instruction, sort of moving forward, scanning the next chapter and a half. This is a point of instruction, verses 23 to the end of the chapter. Jesus tells His followers how hard it is indeed for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Someone who has a lot, whether it's rich in terms of money or rich in terms of accomplishments or power or or wealth, a person who has belongings, who has these things, sees little need to come to Christ. Then He applies to the disciples in chapter 20. You don't get into the kingdom with humility of a child and then set that humility aside and act prideful. No, this becomes a way of life. That humility is distinctive or should be distinctive of believers. Humility becomes the marking attribute of genuine believers. Jesus tells a parable about pride and discontentment and jealousy and calls them to persist in this humility. They obviously are not listening because in the very next section, we see them jockeying for position in the kingdom. And Jesus again confounds them And teaches them a lesson in healing of a couple of guys who are the lowest, these two blind men outside the gates of Jericho. That's the end 
of 20. So that's what we're going to go over the next uh, few weeks and months, Lord willing. For now, though, we're studying the rich young fool. Your Bibles are open to Matthew 18, and let me read to you beginning in 13. I'll just pre-warn you. Uh, as I studied this week, I realized pretty quickly when I got to uh, about the page number where I end my sermon, I realized I'd not even got to the rich young fool part yet. So uh, we're only going to be looking at the first part of this, so pay special attention to verses 13 to 15, uh, but this is all in one flow of thought here. So let me read the entire section, 13 down to 22. Follow along as I read aloud. Matthew 19, beginning of verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and went away. Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. The young man heard this. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. There are perhaps nothing so tender to our hearts as children. Children, especially if they are your own children, are quite literally your most prized of relationship, the most protected and loved and cared for people in our lives. Crimes against children are seen as the most heinous. Those who commit them are most hated. We should, of course, pray for this young girl who's gone missing the last few days in Waimanalo, who's disappeared. Horrifying to imagine what's happened or happening to her. I've been told that even among criminals... Criminals in a prison, if someone is outed as a molester or a murderer of children, at the, he or she at the very least is ostracized from the other criminals, but usually they are physically punished by the other criminals. It seems even among criminals they understand this love and kindness that we should give to children. Even as your children grow older, though they become more sinful and more directly responsible for those sins, most parents still hang on to this Love, this relentless love for them, the the pain of seeing our children in trouble or struggling, even as they move toward adulthood, it's hard not to go and rescue them. Oftentimes, I've seen this over and over, even as they're adults, our our love for our children calls us to perhaps get a second job to to help them out, to send them money, to to prop them up, to send them up. We do this even in their later years of life, sometimes to their demise, but we just love them so much, right? We, We love these children. In church, a love for children is, is baptized, so to speak. We, we teach our children that we love them and we care for them and we set up all kinds of things to protect them from a dark world out there. We teach our children that we do love them indeed, that their parents love them. And you baptize it and that you grow up in church. Perhaps the earliest song that you learn is what? Jesus loves me. Who loves you more than your parents and loves you more than this church? Well, Jesus loves me. That's another song you learn. Jesus loves the little children of the world. 
If you learn New Testament stories and you're a young child in church, what do you learn? You learn this story. Some of you who grew up in church, you remember the old King James version of this story. And you remember that phrase, suffer the little children, come to me. And you have this idea in your mind that Jesus loves children. You know, this is what was happening in Jesus' day. As he was teaching and, and healing people, some, some parents of children, specifically Luke makes clear, these are little children, young children, perhaps even many of them babies. They line up, not for a ceremony or a baptism or something like that. They line up simply for Jesus to hug them and to pray for them. I do think it would be wrong to read into this more than what is said here. I don't think this has anything to do with instituting some sort of liturgy or practice, whether it be infant baptism or child dedications or whatever. This is not about any of that. This is just, this guy is holy, he's good. At the very least, this, this is a, a prophet, a good man, a godly man, and I want my kid to be blessed by this, by this man. I want him to touch them and, and bless them and pray for them. And so these parents, they begin to line up. And they have their toddlers and their kids and they're holding them and they're making noises and they're, they're bringing them to Jesus and trying to get a, a place in the line so that their child can be blessed by Jesus. The disciples do what they did before with children. They want to protect Jesus from that distraction. In their minds, Jesus, of course, had many more important things to deal with, preaching and teaching and, of course, healing of people who were sick, to name a couple. But not only does Jesus say, stop preventing them, bring them to me, he uses then his love for children and his reception of children to teach his followers an object lesson. What is that lesson? People with the humility of children are the ones who enter the kingdom. That's the lesson here. Yes, we, we can draw from this stories about children and Jesus loves the little children. We can, we can derive that from this text. But the lesson here is about who gets into the kingdom. And we have this contrast of who gets in, people who are like children. Who doesn't get in, the rich young fool. People with the humility of children are the ones who enter his kingdom. To say it another way, only people who shun their credentials, who lay aside their accomplishments, who see those things as nothing, only people who come to Jesus with utter dependence on him are the ones who make it into the kingdom. They are the only ones who are saved. People, the human race, they naturally believe the opposite, don't they? People naturally believe it is their status, it's their accomplishments, their morality that get them to God. You ask a thousand people why they think they're going to heaven, 999 will tell you because they're good. Their morality, their credential, they'll begin to roll out for you all the things that they have done or are doing. I give, I pray, I attend, I'm good. Look at who I know. Look, at, look to whom I'm related. Look at the results of my life. I mean, look at my resume. I have references. Ask my friends. I'm a good person. Surely, God, you won't deny me entrance into your kingdom because I'm so good. Children, particularly young children, the babies being brought to Jesus, many of them can't even speak. There's no assumption here. Total helplessness 
Perhaps they can't even walk. They're being handed around. They have absolute 100% dependence on the people who love them. They have total acceptance of their incapability, their lack of status, their lack of credentials. I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, this is something that Jesus is repeating. Jesus had taught this some verses ago, back at the beginning of 18. Maybe if you weren't here, you can go back and listen or watch the videos on that. Same subject, same illustration. The illustration of children of the kingdom, this is absolutely not about having a simple, mindless faith. Some people refer to it as a childlike faith. This passage is absolutely not about suspending logic. It's not about stopping clear thinking, ignoring good science or rationale in order to have some sort of blind faith in Jesus. Nothing here or anywhere else in the Bible tells you to to suspend good thinking to follow Christ. Nothing tells us to not worship God with our mind. No, we we are to worship God with all of our minds. No, what this passage is here and the one before, they're here to call us to total humility, to see ourselves as spiritually helpless infants, no accomplishments, no credentials, no merits. We come to the kingdom by acknowledging, by coming to terms with our total reliance on Jesus Christ. And like I said, most people never get this. Most assume, or better presume, that their theology is correct when it comes to getting into heaven. And that theology is that their accomplishments will get them there. They're good enough. Now, the fact is, though 99.9% of people believe this, democracy does not create truth. Jesus says this is not true. That common doctrine is wrong, says Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. So Matthew, after giving this illustration of Jesus teaching of a child entering the kingdom, follows a story with a rich young fool. In my mind, that's one of the saddest stories in the Bible. And I'm sad to report this tragic story of the rich young fool is repeated more throughout human history, really, than any other story. We love good stories. We love to hear stories. Uh, Think about what happened in 9-11, the people that were inspiring, so uplifting, so encouraging, so brave, even in the face of death. All these noble deeds, we love these stories, but unless passages like this change people's hearts, and we acknowledge people can do moral things, surface moral things, but unless a passage like this comes along and changes their hearts, they'll just repeat this same story. They may not be rich, they may not be young, But they're a fool. Why? Because they look to their accomplishments and not to Jesus. This testimony, the story of the rich young fool, is really across the world what is most common in the human race. But again, this story is not all sad because we have here at the beginning this beautiful depiction of Jesus' love for children. And that is the attitude of Jesus toward anyone who will come to him with that kind of humility. It's the opposite. It's the complete opposite of what we see with the rich young fool or what we see in most people. We live in a world of accomplishments, achievements, self-esteem, self-assertion, and people think that's the way they get into the kingdom. We advance in this world with those things. But if we consider them as waste, as Paul did, we'll be suddenly immersed in the love and warmth, embrace, and blessing of Jesus and be a part of his kingdom. 
You heard it earlier. Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes through the credentials that he has as a Jew, as a leader in the Jewish community, as a Pharisee and a leader among the Pharisees. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Earlier in Philippians, Paul said, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. And of course, what did he consider as his greatest joy? Not to accomplish things in the world, but to share in the sufferings of Christ, to be unified with Christ. Why? Because in doing so, he joins his kingdom in the fellowship of the resurrection. Well, this is so hard to accept, and this is why I believe Jesus repeats this theme over and over and why it happened on multiple occasions. It at least happened twice, maybe more than that, where Jesus used a child to depict true faith. And so Matthew gives us the story about Jesus attitude toward children so that we would fellowship, share in that fellowship of the resurrection. We would enjoy God's presence forever. This is a life-changing call to come to him with no pride, with total dependence upon him. All right, let's get to the text. As I studied this week, like I said, I realized we only have time to consider these first few verses, the verses about the child, uh, verses 13 to 15, which give us point one of sort of a two-Sunday sermon, how to enter the kingdom, or simply how can I be saved? And like I said, I can't help but think that there are some here who need to be asking that question if you're not already. How can I be saved? Number one, totally depend on Jesus. Totally depend on Jesus. Depend on Jesus Christ. Now, as we read the Bible... You go through, this is a little bit of a, of a lesson on interpretation. As you read the Bible, as you go through the Old Testament and read the Old Testament, and even coming into the New Testament here in, into Matthew, the Old Testament points readers to the message of the gospel. The themes of Messiah, atonement, imputation, new covenant, resurrection, the indwelling of the Spirit, these can all be found in the Old Testament. But the gospel message of faith in Jesus is, is still, at that point, pretty blurry. The, the gospel story of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and ascended to the Father has not yet happened, and so there's, there, there's still some blurriness to that message. It's all there, the pieces, the elements are, are there in terms of the themes but it's still distant and blurry. A good way to think of the Old Testament is that it's like a puzzle. All the pieces are there, but it's not yet assembled. Maybe you have sections of it or parts of it that seem kind of clear and, and give you a general idea as you inspect the, the, the puzzle, but it's not all been put together. The gospel elements are there, but Christ hadn't come yet. He hadn't lived and taught and died and rose putting all those pieces together. So the great news or the gospel is when Jesus came and lived his life and died and rose, he began to put that massive puzzle together and it all became clear. And the great news is that anyone who would believe in this would be saved. Well, the reason I bring this up in our text is that Jesus doesn't delineate exactly at this point how 
to depend upon him. How it is this humility of a child applied in terms of dependence and faith in Christ, how is this applied? He just calls upon them to do it. Have the dependence of a baby. Have the humility of a baby. Now, there's all those puzzle pieces in the Old Testament. Like I said, they've all been there, and there's clues there. Think of Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. Although the covenants, the precursors, the shadows, the pictures, the tabernacle, all these things give us precursors or shadows of the gospel. And, of course, on top of that, you have, by this point in Matthew, you have Jesus had already been teaching for a couple of years, more than a couple of years, including the prediction of his death and resurrection. He continued to teach the apostles, not just then, but all the way up to the death. And after the resurrection, he taught them. And those apostles then took those truths that Jesus had taught, and they put together the rest of the New Testament with the gospel of Christ in the foreground. All the pieces are coming together. All the things that Jesus had been taught, they, they put it together under the inspiration of the Spirit. So what I want us to do today is just consider, I want us to sort of look at the broader picture of what it means to have that humility, to have that dependence upon Jesus, that the dependence that he was calling for, as he said, only those who enter as children or perhaps those, the kingdom is full of those who have this humility. What does it mean to depend on Jesus? First of all, it means to depend on the work of Christ. Specifically, I would say the atonement and the imputation. Now, that first idea of relying on Christ's atonement, this is something that if you've been around church stuff at all, you, you've heard this. Most of you have heard the phrase, Jesus died for me or he died for my sins, died to take away my sins. These are, these are themes that even people who are outside the church, who perhaps even have never been around church, have heard people say they understand that this is part of Christian theology, that people believe that Jesus died for us. And this is indeed consistent with Scripture. Isaiah 53 verse 4 said he carried our sorrows away. Verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. Romans 4.25 says that He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Galatians 1.4 says He gave Himself for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus died and was raised up victorious over sin and death. And verse 17 says, had he not done that, we would still be in our sin. Meaning we'd still be under the condemnation of our own sin. So what he did, truly did, atone for our sin. I love what Pastor Ryan pointed out, Ephesians 2 last week. I think it was his first point. In Christ's death, we are saved from God, through God, by God, for God. Zero in on that idea. We are saved from God. How so? God is an eternally just infinitely righteous God, and He must punish your sin. Christ was stretched out on the cross, not just as a punishment from the Jewish leaders or from the Romans. He was stretched out on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and that penalty came from God Himself. God judged Christ on the cross as though Christ had sinned, even though He had not sinned. Christ was punished by God for our sin. Well, this is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. In my place, condemned he stood. Back to Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. So when we depend on Christ, when we commit on Christ's work, we first and foremost depend on His atoning work, that He really did pay for my sin. Do you believe that? Sometimes in this modern world, it's hard to believe that. Some guy who lived 2,000 years ago, this ancient guy, you get bogged down with all you've seen on the Discovery Channel or whatever your professor said from some public university, and you just get all bogged down and think, there's no way that could be real. Well, the question is, is whether or not the Bible is true. The Bible says it's real. Scripture spoke of it in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. I just read you all these verses. It's exactly what the Scripture teaches. Do you believe God's Word? That Jesus really did pay for sin on the cross. If you believe that, He's paid for it. Have you built your life around that reality that Jesus has atoned for your sin? Well, there's another thing that happens when a person has faith in Jesus. We studied it a lot some years ago. We looked at the book of Romans. Learn this word. It's a word, you've heard atonement probably, but learn this word, imputation. We talked about it a lot. For whatever reason, we teach our kids a lot about the atonement. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sin. But even adults don't really understand the idea of imputation. Big word, but you need to learn it. What does it mean? Well, it means covering. It means crediting to someone else's account. A good way to start to think about imputation is to think about our sins upon Christ in terms of atonement. Our sin was imputed upon Christ. It covered Christ. Our sins were laid upon Christ as though he did them, even though he didn't. That's imputation. They were credited to his account, even though they weren't his sins. Well, that was for atonement. But there's a second kind of imputation that I want you to focus on, and I I think this is something we rely on when it comes to depending on Christ, and that's the imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness upon us. Just as our sin was credited to him, even though he didn't do it, his righteousness is credited to us when we have faith, even though we didn't do it. You see this all over the Bible, this idea, our old filthy garments being exchanged for white linens. These are not our white linens. We have soiled our garments. We've lived this world of sin. We've satisfied ourselves. We're filthy people. And yet, when we have faith in Christ. He exchanges those old filthy garments for new ones that are white as snow. You see this in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, 10, Zechariah 3, verse 4. You see this at the very end, Revelation 3, verse 4. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 says, there is this divine, perfect righteousness And it's reserved for all those who have faith in Christ. Of course, the example is given in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 4, verse 3, that uh, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was counted righteous even though he was a, originally he was a pagan. It was credited to him as righteous. This is imputation. Well, all that to say this, the First way I would say we depend upon Christ is to depend on the work of Christ, especially when it comes to His work of atonement and imputation. We depend on Him for that payment for our sin. We could never pay for our sin in a million lifetimes, in a million eternities. We could never pay for our own sin. But Christ did. We could never produce the righteousness that's required to get into heaven because it is absolute perfection. We could never produce that. He's provided it for us. That when we have faith, we're covered with His righteousness. 
So that's the first way we depend upon Christ. We depend upon the work of Christ. How else should we depend upon Jesus? Depend upon the life of Christ. We depend upon the life of Christ to give us, to demonstrate for us the morals, but really the words that He speaks to fill our lives with how to believe, how to speak, how to act, how to live. This is also known as abiding in Him. Jesus said in John 15, beginning in verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser, every branch that Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do Nothing. Later on, he describes how we abide in him. We let his words abide in us. So you hear this concept here. You're, you're clean because the word has come to you, the word that I've spoken. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been putting the puzzle together. It's come to them, all but Judas. This has come to them in their hearts, in their minds. They have been made clean. They are Christians, so to speak, in sort of a pre-Christian way. They're, they're believers. They're followers of Christ. You're clean because of the word that I've spoken. You are saved by the power of the Spirit in the preaching of the word. You totally depend on me for what they would understand as imputation and atonement. You have been made clean because of my words. But this does not mean that they are sinless. It does not mean that they're done, that they sort of had faith for, they trusted in Jesus for that covering and that atonement, and then they're sort of, they're finished with Jesus. Now they've got their ticket to heaven, they don't have to worry about anything. No, they're still sinful. They need help with life. You don't just use faith to get some Jesus and get to heaven. Now they're done with him, now they're done with faith, no way. One who depended on faith for Jesus, upon Jesus for interest into the kingdom, now lives in a Christ-dependent way. Now, Jesus says, abide in me and let my words abide in you. You do that, he says, and you will bear much fruit. Verse 8 in John 15, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, it's just as Pastor Ryan preached last week. Salvation is not the product of works. Works is the product of salvation. God designs us to have to come to Him in humility and faith and dependence, and, and we don't just leave that behind once we're saved. We, we continue to grow in that dependence and that grow in that faith and that abiding in Christ. And we are to live in the Word of God, the message that Jesus preached, the life of Jesus. And like I said a minute ago, it's not just confined to the red letters in the Gospels. It's, it's all that's said there. You read the rest of the New Testament and you realize this is the teaching of Christ to the apostles. You're to live in the Word in that way. You look to Jesus' life. You depend on Him for the truths. You depend on Him for the attitudes, the action, the, the words of Christ. 
You depend on those patterns of morality. It depends on the, you depend on the theology. You study it. You dig into it. You learn it. You depend on it. You live by it. You make these things real in your life. You abide in Him. How do you come to Christ? How do you enter the kingdom as a child? First, you depend on Christ's crucifixion and atonement and imputation. Second, you depend on Jesus' life and words for truth and morals to guide you. You abide in Him. Third, you you depend on the resurrection of Christ. You depend on the resurrection of Christ. You depend on the resurrection of Christ because this is what gives us hope. It gives us the confirming value in terms of what Jesus said and who He was is indeed true. And we place our hope and trust in the things that he said because he's risen from the grave, and it gives us a hope for the fact that one day we'll be like him. God will give us resurrected bodies, and we'll live forever. We place our hope in this. We give us, it gives us joy. Should I even say this? Our hope is not in America. Our hope is not in good politics or good politicians or policies that happen in the government. Our joy is not derived from that. You may be surprised that that's true, given to what a lot of Christians are talking like these days. This is a truth that is so real in the New Testament, you never heard them ever groaning and complaining and griping and bickering about policies and law. They found their joy in Jesus. They found their hope in Jesus. We don't find our joy in these things. We find our joy in Christ and what He's done for us. We place our joy, we, our, our attitudes, our spirit, the way we carry ourselves, our, 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 our joy is not determined by what's going on in this world. I'm sad to report that I fall short on this. I'm sure many of you would agree with me. You too fall short on this in so many ways. Circumstances define you, not the joy of Christ. We should also not find joy in, or hope in our money. I get it. Most of us, we... We buy insurance policies. We're purchasing security is essentially what we're buying. We want to make sure that our family is okay. If we were to pass away, in the end, money is nothing. Money is technically all moral. It's neither good nor bad. And the Bible teaches the more of it and the more we set our eyes on it, the more we become covetous of it. We want more of it, and it corrupts us. The love of money is the root of all evil. No, money's not useless. Money's not wrong to have, but it's certainly wrong to hope in. It's certainly wrong to find your spiritual security in. It can be a lure for us, money, belonging, stuff. We also struggle sometimes. We hope in our position, our power, find security and hope that we're sort of going up in the ranks and we're getting higher and higher and having more influence and more power. All these are false securities And these false securities, by the way, are the securities that the rich young fool found confidence and hope in. He found his sense of security, his sense of self, his sense of identity, not in Christ, but in politics. It was a ruler, another gospel writer says. He found it in status. He mostly found it in his belongings. And this could flow from the point I just made about abiding in Christ letting His words abide in you. Our eternal hope is not derived from stuff. Where is our hope? Our hope is in Christ and the promises of God. 
Hebrews 11 tells us about all these people who, who find their hope in the promises given by the Word of God, not in the world. Later in Hebrews, it says we fix our eyes on Him who is Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, we see the one who was resurrected and will one day resurrect us to new life eternally. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, and the following says, For we know, <clears throat> excuse me, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this we hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? That if we hope in what we do not see, we wait with it for patience. In other words, we believe the promises of God, even though we don't see them right now. God has said, and I will believe, I I know that because of Christ's resurrection, I too will one day be resurrected. He will return. And I believe this, and I hope in this. Next verse in Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I have to digress here a moment. That passage has nothing to do with prayer language. Private prayer language was an idea invented in the first part of the 20th century after some people who thought they had the gift of tongues went out and thought they had the gift of tongues like that is in the Bible, languages, and they went out and tried it, and it didn't work. And so they made up a new category of tongues called private prayer language No, this passage is not about what we can babble, but about what the Spirit prays on our behalf. This is all about what the Spirit does. That's so much more encouraging than a verse about what I can do in babbling. What the Holy Spirit does for me. He says things to God that I I don't even know. He can say things and know things that I don't even know about myself. And he can pray the exact prayers that that I, I wish I could pray, but only the Spirit knows. Paul is wanting Christians to stop finding their hope in the world, to stop determining their joy by what's going on, their hope in what's going on in the world, the circumstances around them. He wants them to stop depending on their wealth. He wants them to find hope in Christ alone. How do they do that? They believe in what is unseen. The promises of God, one of them being that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes on our behalf. Now, this brings me to a fourth way we totally depend on Christ, depend on the Spirit of Christ. Depend on the Spirit of Christ, and really what the Spirit of Christ does, it enables all of the above. That passage about the Spirit interceding for us, it's all about when we need hope, when we need strength, when we're failing and we're, we're struggling and the world is crushing us and we're being persecuted. It's all about how we know that, that the right thing to do is to continue to trust in God, that even when we don't know what to do, the Spirit is interceding for us. So when we need hope, we trust the Holy Spirit's interceding for us before God. That's where we find hope. Jesus called the Spirit the Comforter, that the Comforter is provided. Sometimes theologians say that the Comforter is provided by both, uh, proceeded by, by, by both the Father and the Son. He comes, flows from God and the Son. It's, this, it's Christ's Spirit. It's God's Spirit. The Spirit provides for us hope. The Spirit also provides for us the ability to live by the words of Christ, to abide in Him. 
to obey those commands of Jesus, to walk in the Spirit, right? What is walking in the Spirit? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul says in Galatians 5.16. And thank goodness that's not talking about having some kind of amazing, bizarre, charismatic experience. Walking in the Spirit is is just obeying and, and doing what's right. Ultimately, what is walking in the Spirit? It's producing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit provides these for us. That's the Spirit-filled life. You need help. So do I. We need to depend on the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to help us in these ways. I pray this every single week. I, I prayed it this morning already. We, we pray that God would, would enable us and, and empower us by the power of the Word to, to, to go away from this place changed, obedient, doing what these words say. And I pray it almost every single week that, well, the reason we come to you is we need your Spirit to take this Word and change us and use it to empower us and enable us for obedience. The Spirit also guards our heart. He grants us, through His Word, spiritual discernment. He gives us spiritual discernment to understand and believe what's been said about Christ, what's been said about His atonement, His imputation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about the person who's not saved, who's without the Spirit of God. That person Paul calls the natural man. The natural man, without the Spirit, Paul writes, cannot discern. The wisdom of God. Maybe he can understand it intellectually, but he doesn't get it. He's dead inside. He's got nothing. He can't understand it, why the Spirit's not working in him. We depend on the Spirit to work in us, to change us, to help us understand the Word of God. In contrast to that dead man, Jesus says in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. You recognize that the Spirit was the first of the triune God, to act on you. You ever thought about that? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was the first of the triune God to act on you. He's the one that regenerated your heart so that you could understand and see and believe the gospel and repent. The Spirit acted upon your heart, and He continues to change you and cause you and help you repent and, and, and be molded and understand the Scripture and live by it and obey the words of Christ. The Holy Spirit enables you to believe and repent and to rely on Jesus, and He continues to do that. So we look to the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to do these things. The Spirit was not done once you were saved. He continued and still continues to this day to give you strength and hope and desire and truth that you need to persevere in this world. So how is a person saved? How do you enter the kingdom? If you come to Christ as a child, totally dependent on his work, his life, his resurrection, his spirit. You willing to do that? Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? The Spirit is making you willing right now. Just do it. Just cry out to God. I have faith. I believe. I believe. And friend, I can tell you, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe today and you will be saved. And I can say to you, friend, welcome to the kingdom. As a child, you've come and humbled yourself. If you're already a genuine believer, what wonderful words to hear these wonderful words. And I'm so glad that we sang the story over and over again. These old words, these old truths, these gospel truths 
We think about even what is presented here, what I presented this morning about having faith in Christ, depending on Christ, and what a great way, perhaps, even to share your own faith, to share your testimony. Maybe you could remember those things, how I came to Christ. I came to Christ as a child in my heart, humble. I came to Christ totally dependent on His work, meaning His imputation and atonement. I came to Him reliant on His words, His, his life, the what He did and what He said, His theology, which is given to us. I came dependent upon His resurrection for hope, looking for a future, and I came to Him reliant that the Holy Spirit would help me in all of this. What a wonderful way to think of your own testimony. What a wonderful way to continue to pursue Christ-likeness. Well, this is the good news. This is the beautiful story of the child coming to Christ. Next week is the sad truth. What's the sad truth? Most people reject this. They're like the rich young fool. They hear it. Perhaps even intellectually they get it. But they walk away. According to Scripture, they're fools. Jesus' encounter with the rich young fool is terrible and tragic and all too common, isn't it? Let's pray that God will help us not be like that man, but be like these children, totally helpless and trusting in Jesus. Father, we love you. We worship you. We do thank you for sending the Spirit to work in us, to regenerate our hearts and to cause us to understand and believe with all of our heart that Jesus did indeed die for our sins and provide us righteousness that Jesus gives us the word of true, words of truth that we live by. Lord, we thank you for all these things. He gives us especially hope to anticipate one day your return and our own bodily resurrection, that we'll be given eternal bodies that will be able to worship him flawlessly for eternity. And we thank you, dear God, for your spirit to help us with all of this. Again, Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, we pray that this would be the day of salvation for them. That they would have genuinely repented where they are. And they would take this new idea, this new thought, tell someone, tell their spouse, someone around them, tell one of the pastors, give them a desire to, to love you and respond to you in this way. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>